there, it's Callum Newman with the Fat Tail Investment Podcast again, and I'm thrilled uh, today to introduce you to a guy called Tim Davies um, coming up. He's an investment manager, runs quite a big fund actually, 100 million US dollars, and he talked. Well, he's going to share with you uh, his views on a couple of big topics. One is China and the issues that have uh, flared up over there with their property market. Uh, two Tesla. Uh, and why he thinks the market is wrong on Tesla, and he also touched on crypto. And so, if you're especially if you're skeptical uh, on Bitcoin and that market, he's got some interesting ideas to share with you there. Uh, but before we get to Tim, I wanted to share a little bit of a story I've seen uh, that popped out of me last week. So, some of you may know that I I have written about. Uh, the property market for about 10 years now. And I work with Catherine Cashmore um, recommending stocks related to that. And last year we released a report uh, saying why we thought 2020 was going to be a massive buying opportunity for property. Nobody believed us. We put out the report, absolutely, well, I wouldn't say nobody, but very few people bought it because simply with the pandemic going on, it just seemed ridiculous. And all the, uh, uh, banks were coming out going, it's going to go down, it's going to go down. And of course, they were wrong. We were, well, have been proven right thus far. But one of the objections, the reason I bring it up, it's not to brag, one of the objections we got was, there's no immigration coming into Australia because of the pandemic. So who's going to buy all these houses? Um, because previous to that, the, the, the overarching narrative of the housing market was, well, Australia had high immigration and, and that's what was driving up uh, prices, which as we know now, was a lot of bullshit. But anyway, here we have here a story, and if I can, I'll get my assistant Belvedere to put it up so it's a little bit easier to read. But it's the new guy in town up there in New South Wales called Dominic Perrottet, who, who this morning just come out and said he's got a seventh baby on the way, so he's a busy boy. Um, so, But anyway, he comes out and he says that, or the article is saying that Perrottet backs immigration rise for a big New South Wales. Uh, and I'll just read you a little bit here. This is, so this is the, the article. So to quote, the New South Wales government's top bureaucrats last week urged the newly sworn-in Premier to take a national leadership position and advocate a temporary five-year doubling of the pre-pandemic migration rate, which was about 200,000 a year. And uh, unquote, Previous to that, the, the lady Gladys, who just got the flick, who was not such a big fan of that idea. So why do we care? Obviously, with more people coming into Australia, it is going to keep pressuring housing prices. Now, likely uh, a lot of that skilled migration, the, the, the area that's aching for it is Western Australia. So it's obviously very tightly restricted still over there. But when that place opens up, the, the wages in the mining boom going on there is going to attract a lot of people. So it does give... Uh, Western Australian property, a very good outlook. But I would expect a lot of the states to try and do that as well to juice their economies coming up. So a little bit of uh, insight there from, from my end on the property cycle. But now we get to the, to the juicy bit, and that's Tim Davies. So he's the fund manager at Holland Group, and uh, we sat down last week and had a good chat. So I hope you enjoy it. Earlier, I mentioned I'd be speaking to uh, Tim Davies uh, earlier in the introduction, I should say, and I've got him on line with me now, and I'm thrilled to have him with me. And I'll tell you why. Um, 
Tim came out recently with a piece in the Australian newspaper just as the, the fear was rattling around about the Chinese uh, developer uh, Evergrande. And he came out and said, well, I don't think this is going to be a major contagion um, problem. And he explained why some of those reasons were. And he has uh, lived in China. He's invested in Chinese equities. Um, so he's got a really close look on what's happening there. Tim, I mentioned to you earlier that, uh, you know, I always admire someone when they're prepared to stick their neck out uh, and go against the, the uh, consensus, if you like. Can you explain why you're not worried about Evergrande? Um, thanks very much, Callum, for the opportunity to speak today. I think it's um, it's a matter of it's a matter of really understanding. I think how the Chinese system is set up, and it'll it'll enable you to to think about look what is the risk of uh, bank loans within the property sector becoming a sort of systemic event across their whole um, economy. If you, if you wind back 10 years, there was no doubt that China had real issues with property. Um, prices were rising at double digits. Uh, and, and it was really a model that was built on, um, you know, the larger SOE banks, ICB, CCB. Um, they were really lending huge amounts of money to uh, favourite property developers. It was really the old system in China, um, accumulating very large land banks, um, doing deals with the provincial governments that needed to continually sell land to prop up um, their own income statements uh, to meet sort of government targets. You've seen a real change in China, I think, over the last decade or so, where um, much more of a focus on what you call business principles. Um, if we look at the property sector, since um, President Xi made some comments uh, in 2016, late 2016, where he, he basically said, look, property is for living in, not for speculation. And so since that late 2016, early 2017 statement, you've seen a real push from the Chinese government to um, limit growth in prices by controlling things like um, your ability to sell. So you can't flip homes in China like you can in the US. Most of the bigger cities now have at least a two-year hold um, from the time of buying. Um, they've, also, um, they've also been very careful in making sure at least a minimum 30% deposit that individuals put down on a property, uh, limits on how many properties you can hold. Um, and, then, and then restrictions around the government, its ability to lend to property developers who, who may have been over leveraged because of that previous China model. As a result of that, we see China property that's only up on average 5% a year since 2017. Um, we see bank loans in the system, which I think is the most important thing to focus on is bank loans. So property of the total loan, banking system loans made across China, only 28% is lent into the property sector. So it, it, it reduces that, that risk of a, of a quick fall in housing prices impacting the balance sheets of banks. They've Absolutely. Less... What, one sorry, reason I, me, I picked sorry, up on your, uh, your article was that it's always the, the banking system and the link to the property that has caused these massive crashes in Western markets. Absolutely. 
so I was really fascinated. I didn't know that stat. I was fascinated to see it. When you step back, you mentioned your global tech fund. Do you do you look for opportunities within the housing market, or you just sort of tick you you tick the boxes? Okay, we don't have to worry about that as a macro risk, if you know what I mean, within the the China market. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, it'll be exposure to RMB, so RMB price stocks, RMB businesses. Um, a real contagion would, would potentially cause a significant fall in the value. Of, of the Chinese currency, and that would translate into, into a loss within our own shares. And also just the general environment, whether it's um, the operating environment in China, it's a healthy business place. And, and I guess the swing factor that's really important that sits across all this is, is what, um, you know, foreign investor sentiment, particularly out of the US, um, that, that's sort of always looking for the next crisis in China. Um, and we see this huge volatility in share prices, um, the same pictures get posted that I saw back in 2008 about oh, all these overbuilt houses. It, it's literally over, um, you know, I've spent uh, almost 20 years working in the Chinese market. I've seen the same building every four years shown. So it's a, a rehashing of the same story. Um, I guess the key thing to take away about China is, as I said, 28% of bank loans have been made to property. If you look at Australia, that's like 75%. And in regional banks, is 80% of total loans of the banking system is against property that's going up a lot faster than what we've seen in China, that 5% control. Um, and just for those statistics you mentioned earlier about the, you know, the, the, the large deposit and the, the higher interest rate, that really does take out, I would assume, the risky borrower like the US subprime thing where they had like no job, no assets, no income. Um, you know, I, it would have to be a market dominated by high net worth individuals, I would think. Is that fair to say? Uh, look, in China, look, there's a couple of things on that. You can still get four, four and a half percent on your bank return. I mean, returns are gone across most of the other world. So they've been able to keep that fat in the system. They can always pull them down and get investment coming out of it, but they don't. Um, I think traditionally China was that that high-end, high net worth person buying lots of properties. Today, it's people themselves, like buying their first unit, um, buying maybe their second unit as an investment property. Um, the stock market has only been around in China since the late 90s. So a lot of people say, look, it's volatile and everything. Well, it's only been around for 25 years. And so less than one generation's had access to um, a stock market. It wasn't until the early 90s in China that you'd get property title. So the, the, the state owned all the properties up until um, it started to be addressed in the 1990s and, and again through the 2000s so that today you actually own the title, whereas in such a short time ago, it didn't make sense to own property because you didn't really know what you were buying. Well, interesting you say that because I know one of the, the- dynamics or my perception of China was that they historically put their money into property and gold because they really didn't have that many options. Um, and they always had the worry about inflation and that type of thing. Do you subscribe to this idea that just more and more wealth is going to get pushed into Chinese equities, A, from the Chinese people, and then Western investors looking for you know growth opportunities in that market? Yeah, look, I, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I, I think that foreigners eventually will get more comfortable um, they'll, they'll eventually um, stop being so hypersensitive to Chinese news. 
just takes time, I think, and experience as an investor. Um, I think the Chinese themselves will, you know, they'll continue to invest as, um, you know, the generation that's younger today that's grown up with the stock market there is more likely to have shareholdings as part of their, um, their investment strategy. For foreigners, the really big opportunity for foreigners is, is trying to, um, foreigners will have to hold China's yuan over time. Um, China's banking system, one of the real challenges, unlike the US where you have this really big bond market, corporate bond market, China doesn't have that. So the banks end up holding all of that debt. I think as you can start to see foreign countries giving up maybe some US dollar holdings and holding more RMB, it gives them the opportunity to start thinking about using that RMB and, and taking a higher yield by investing into fixed income products out of China. That's probably going to be the big catalyst globally over the next 20 years. And again, it'll make the bank safer. They'll be able to start pushing some of these assets off their own balance sheet and having long-term foreign investors um, really happy to hold those assets. One thing I always hear about, like, is the capital control thing that the China has, and the Chinese can only—I think it's correct me if I'm wrong—like, say, fifty thousand dollars can yeah. leave China or something like that. Does does that influence when you uh, are looking for an? Is that a problem for you to that you have to work around, or or do you think that's something that they're going to get rid of down the track? Um. No, look, I think for the moment it's you know China is a closed capital account. They have the option of managing capital flows across their borders. Um, will they get rid of it? I'm not sure. I don't think in the short term. I think it works well. Um, there are ways to get around it. I think legally you used to be able to apply to the government to have more. Um, if, you're a, if you own your own business and it's successful in China, you'll look to list in offshore markets. Um, Hong Kong was one, but now that that's obviously um, much closer within the China's financial system, you probably see companies look to list in Singapore and the US. So it enables them to take capital and build it offshore. Um, those wealthier people can have their money offshore. The other route was, we, you know, was well known about was, was going through Macau casinos. And I think the government over the last decade or so has done a, a really big job in terms too. of stomping down on the ability to be able to wash RMB for a fee through a Macau casino and, and be delivered US dollars and, um, you'll see that with, get with numbers in Macau and you'll see that with the performance of a lot of the Macau gaming stocks, um, they're reflecting a much tighter government policy about controlling that um, losing capital across borders. Well, you, meant, you mentioned earlier that your focus is global tech and, and it's interesting for me, like I've been watching from the sidelines for years now, how things move in cycles. So Alibaba and Tencent, uh, are two very big Chinese firms that have been absolutely smashed lately. We mentioned uh, the property problems, but we've also got the, I guess, more aggressive foreign policy stance from China and the looming flashpoint of Taiwan and the perception that Xi Jinping is sort of installing himself as a dictator. I imagine these are two big things for you to to objections for, for people who are make them nervous about going near China. What, do you have some thoughts on those before we get to the stocks and where they're at at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think the fundamental thing that China's doing is it said it will not build its own country like the West has. Um, and that's a fact. And investors are going to have to accept that, that 
because they've chosen not to go down the path of replicating capitalism, um, it, for somehow it means that there's something wrong with them. The fact is they, they've chosen this path. Um, for China, that means less of a focus on asset price inflation and more a focus on using, for instance, 70% of its bank loans are to industry, manufacturing and export. So it wants to build a capital stock and bring income in and grow the wealth of the country that way, as opposed to the West, which is much more focused around the financialization of assets and increasing the value of our home, the value of our share market, things like that. Um, and, and, and as a and result, we should say, I don't know, Tim, if you do this with your clients, but that is how Japan got to being the number two economy in the world, um, at least as I understand it, being a history buff, um, back from 1950 to 1990 or whatever it was. They're, they're doing the yeah, same you'd thing. Argue the, you'd <laughs> argue the US and the UK have done the same thing over the last, uh, you know, one and a half centuries. So, um, you know, the West has gone a different way with its financial system. We know that. Um, and that's why our houses are all worth a fortune. Um, the value of our currencies are lo- debasing and losing value. Um, China has the same issue, but I think um, it's a different business model. And look, she's heavily criticised this idea that he's a dictator for life and stuff. Um, you know, the, the sort of language that's used around President Xi matches that used around President Putin. Um, they're both, um, and, that, and that impacts their markets. Russia's traded at a massive discount for a long time on a valuation discount. And that's one of the challenges of China investor is to, um, is to look through the cycles. I think if you're serious about investing in Tencent and Alibaba that you touched on, you've really got to have a five or 10 year timeframe um, so that you can take advantage of this, um, of the fear and greed. Um, while everybody's fearful now, as we know, if Alibaba rips 100%, um, everybody wants to get on board again. So it, it's definitely um, a pattern that's been in China since I first started investing in there um, back in 2003. Well, let's touch on Alibaba. This is a funny story for me. I had a, a buddy of mine who around 2000, 2018, he had a big stake in NVIDIA. This will make sense in a minute. In yep. NVIDIA, what was his other one? I can't remember. Uh, uh, but the third one was Alibaba, right? And... and I think around about that time, uh, I'm scooting off memory here, but Amazon and Alibaba were roughly the same price or roughly the same perception maybe is a better way of putting it. One was like the, the king of America and Alibaba was the, the king of China. And the, at that stage, it was like, oh, look, Alibaba can take all the data of Chinese people and, and, and monetize them and then they can just, you know, they dominate the 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 selling with their websites and then they've got Alipay and all this sort of stuff and that it started to, to build. But Alibaba at that stage, it, it still had this discount from Western investors. It never got to the PEs of um, uh, NVIDIA and, and Amazon. But eventually it started to go. Then we've had this big drawdown with all these things coming on. And so when I'm looking at the price, it's gone back to where it was in 2018, basically. Um, and that's all to do with what you're talking about and the opportunity where you go, hang on a minute, what has the business case really changed or is it just perception and, and cycles as, as you talk about? So do you want to talk a little bit about how you view Chinese tech, the, the big uh, the big boys? Yeah, look I, look, I think you've just got to really take the time to understand their business models. I mean, 
Alibaba is a very different. So their idea is that you have one platform and they have lots and lots of investments on that platform that they own stakes in. And when you switch on um, Alibaba in the morning, everything is on there till the time you go to sleep. Everything you use, everything you need to do, your eyes are on that platform. And that has over a billion customers in China. And their offshore customer base is almost at 300 million already. That's Southeast Asia you're talking about there, right? They're they're building it out. Southeast Asia with some of the acquisitions they've made. Um, You know, they were China, for instance, because of Tencent and Alibaba. They were 95% of global digital payments, those two businesses, before COVID hit. Now, they've given some back. We know we're all busy tapping ourselves and using QR codes, but China was way ahead of anyone else in using um, using these processes. I think um, there's definitely one of the challenges an investor is is understanding that. So creating a China lens to um, to be able to interpret government policy changes. The government was pretty clear. So they were trying to stop anti-competition. So they were in a situation where um, you could either be a customer of Alibaba or of Tencent, but they wouldn't let you be a customer of both. And so anyone who was smaller than those two got completely crushed and these guys were preventing businesses from really reaching their potential. Now, in China, 65% of jobs sit with SMEs. So it's really important for the government if it wants to push wealth through China, that will allow them to have two children instead of one, which is a really big policy of China these days, is is to solve this population decline issue that comes. Um, so they really, you know, they really had to deal with this issue. And I think as an investor, if I look at it and go, a more competitive environment with tougher restrictions on breaking the law, that's a good thing, a really good thing for China. They've paid some fines, they'll learn, they'll move forwards. I think the one that probably shocked people was the education when they came out on a Friday night, effectively nationalised education, says it's all not-for-profit. Um, if you understood why, which was really around the case of saying, unless you're wealthy, you can't afford the tutoring costs. They got so high. And so you were seeing um, this significant rip in, the, in society that people who couldn't afford were, pull, were falling behind. Again, China's system says we all go forwards together. So by understanding all of these policy decisions, it's critical. You can then go, okay, the situation hasn't changed. On a valuation basis, I mean, Alibaba and Tencent, they got so low the valuations. Within two years' earnings, they would have their cash and their investment portfolios was more than the company's valuation. I mean, it was just obscene. They They were trading at 75% discounts to the U.S., it's interesting what you mentioned with the, the regulation that China came in with because for years now there's been the, the idea that in the US the movement would build to regulate Facebook and Amazon, mm. but they don't do it. Exactly. And it just with the recent uh, kerfuffle about Facebook where they go, that lady's come out and said, look, they know that they're doing all these things that are not actually particularly good for society and come with all these horrible consequences, but they just keep ripping the place for money. Um mm. So again, it gets back to that idea whether you're trying to, if you, if you just step back, you go from a social perspective, they're, they're probably doing the right thing. 
But then that's why the US has got this sort of fractured social uh, dynamic going on mm, where the rich definitely. keep getting richer. And so yeah. you can, you do need to take, I guess, step outside the financial side of it a little bit yeah. and go, well, you know, put put yourself in their shoes and it, maybe it is the right move. Uh, all right. So-, and then, so it's worthwhile just adding, Callum, I think as well, if you look at, they kept selling off and selling off and selling off. And if you looked at each of those examples, of the truth, and one of them said that when China, um, for kids under 18, we're going to restrict how much you can watch. And, and the stock fell like 5 or 10% that day and didn't recover. Um, so in China, it, it was for the number of people using it, it was 1.5% of revenue that could have been impacted by that announcement. The reality is Tencent, its customers are offshore. It owns stakes in global gaming businesses that are used um, you know, everybody is using their products. Um, that was the key driver, not this sort of tiny snippet of news, which really didn't mean a lot for 10 cents revenue. So, you know, there are examples of where this kind of cascading of selling and selling and selling. And we've seen that with the big snapback over the last week or so, where the stocks were up 20 to 30%. Um, it, it's really that kind of oversold stake and um, we've seen Charlie Munger, for instance, in, in Alibaba step in and double his position there. And he will just be a fundamentalist looking at the business, looking at it and seeing um, real value in, in holding it long term. I love that, actually, because you go, look, here's a long term opportunity. And then you go, the yeah. guy's 96. <laughs> yeah. so hopefully it works out for, for, his, uh, for him and those oh, that come like after that. him. So let's talk a little bit about AI. So one of the big things was, OK, the future is like who's got the data, who can do it better do you subscribe to this idea that because of china's sheer weight of population that they'd just be able to harvest more insights train more um ais etc or are you is that a little bit of a distract like a diversion if you like look it's an interesting one you know i mean like the wealthier you get the more you worry about your data china's concern was saying we're not going to allow our data to leave our country so it has to stay within our national borders. Um, within that, I mean, I've got some really close Chinese friends who live there. I've got a business partner who I built the previous funds on the ground with. You know, he always says, look, we don't worry as much about it as the West about people seeing our data. And, and it's probably because um, the focus of where they're at in terms of the development stage was people really starting to, I mean, I first went there in 2003 um, most of the country hadn't, didn't have any disposable income yet. Um, wages have gone up. They're making more money now. Their jobs are getting better. Their expertise is getting better. They have disposable income. And once you've got clean food, good education, a nice house for your family, then you start thinking about, well, what else do I want? Um, so the data issue will build in China about people wanting to have access to their data. Um, controlling their data. Um, it will be the same, the same challenges in the world. I think on a tech basis, you're, you're probably more likely to see um, things like blockchain being used there. So to be able to kind of lock your data with a key and, um, and having that key kind of splintered and, and broken up means you can start to protect your own data. Um, on the West, it'll happen sooner, but I, I certainly think it'll happen in China as well. Just, this just occurs to me before we get to Tesla, because I know you're keen to speak about that, but one of the threats that the macro threats, threats, if you like, is the idea that interest rates will rise in the US and that'll cut down the uh, 
the discount rates for the tech sector, which is quite high flying in the US and is driving mm. the market. Do you see perhaps that could swing things toward the value tech in China if that scenario does play out? Yeah, I mean, it's probably. We, I mean, we sort of think about it like we own you know these great companies in our in our in our portfolio, and we're really confident about the business, so we tick all those boxes. If you think about a portfolio construction basis, by having a high weighting to China today means that if the market gets hit, you're probably going to weather most of the issues within. Are you talking um, about the US market? China, within yeah, just if the world, if markets oh, yeah, are globally. Yep. It's unlikely that you'll see the China stocks get hit anywhere near as hard because they've already given up most of the gains. Um, in terms of how we think about, um, you know, we use a 9% discount rate, 85 9%. And so even if rates move slightly, we, we don't see a huge impact. Um, I think I'm far more, um, far more certain that I, I don't see um, central banks in a position to raise rates for quite a while. Uh, I think just the level of indebtedness uh, and the fact that um, that we're seeing higher pricing and we're starting to see an economic slowdown. The brakes are coming on a little bit. Um, you know, central banks have got their hands full and um, although everybody likes to jump up and down and talk about, you know, we're going to raise rates this month, next month, it, look, it may be slight, but, you know, the, when, you, when you're running at over 100%, you're spending over 100% of tax receipts on, your, your interest on your debt, you've got a problem. And that's the US today. If those rates go up, if they don't get a significant rebound in tax receipts of money coming in and they've got to pay more out, I mean, you, you find yourself at 150% of tax receipts are, are just paying your interest bills. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a real challenge, a real challenge for the US. Um, for us, it probably says that inflation is going to be high, Money will be debased. Um, the value of each dollar will, will continue to fall um, until governments get their balance sheets into shape. That could be five years. It could be 10 years. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, we've talked a lot about China. I'm sure there's no touch base with you, yeah. but your uh, fo focus is broader tech and China is one basket of that. So I did want to give you a space to talk a little bit, bit about your recent report, which I haven't got to yet because it only came out uh, this week and it's on Tesla. Yeah. So obviously, again, man, do things go in cycles? You know, 2015, 16, it was the money period. He was never going to produce a car profitably and it was subsidised by the US government. Uh, as you know, ARC came out a while back and said, no, no, everyone's got it wrong. This is, this is an AI play and they've got the data and uh, EVs are going to sweep the world. Bang, you know, it soars. Most people would think, okay, everybody, every man his dog knows about Tesla. Uh, it's already up a fortune. Is there still opportunity in it? And you think there is? Yeah, no, I appreciate um, talking about this. So, yeah, we've just put out a, I mean, it's been 12 months of my life, 140-page uh, report. Um, we, we, we sort of attacked it uniquely. We, we, look, to start off, like I wasn't a Tesla bull when I started this journey. I, I was really concerned about, I think, before they nailed the Model 3, I was really concerned as well about, their ability to get to scale, um, the cash burn, um, profitability, things like that. Um, that's a couple of years ago now. I think you've seen a remarkable turnaround in the business. Um, and, and really, you know, so we basically approached it. We said, look, what is the, what is the switch from petrol cars 
to EVs look like? And so we, we captured 90% of the world's population and we forecasted that by about 2035, 20, 20, 2040, you can't buy any new petrol cars. And by 2050, basically, most countries will ban the use of them. Um, so a big push from governments in terms of dealing with greenhouse gases. And, and what was interesting is, is this China-India story. So um, if you think about the main driver of EV demand, it, it's not us in the developed world. It's rising incomes across the developing world that means that people are going to be able to buy their first car, like a family for the first time. So we're talking about over a billion families in the developing world in the next 30 years buying their first family car. There is not enough petrol in the world to fuel those cars and the consequences of greenhouse. So we've almost got a colliding here of greenhouse gas at the same time as we've got rising wealth. Now, Tesla are unique in that they saw this early and they have a huge first mover advantage over anybody else. The, the incumbent, so our Toyotas, our German manufacturers, they're in trouble. And I don't think people realise this. So they have $900 billion of debt. The auto parts industry is sitting on $300 billion of debt. And so they've got to go, hang on a minute, we're late to the party on EVs. Demand is rapidly shifting. We've got to keep making petrol cars for at least another 15 years. We've got these massive debt issues. We've got costs rising from aging staff, pension, retirement, shutting down factories. It's, it's a real, um, an incredibly difficult thing. Um, if you go back to the, the beautiful kind of way to think about this, I think, is Nokia is a handset maker. So Q4 2007, 51% global market share. Couldn't have been any better. Five years later, they had 3% market share. That was the iPhone, so yeah. They just missed it. They were late to the party and they didn't innovate in time. And even through 2008, 2008, 2009, they kept saying, we'll be right, we're going to bring out this version. The consumer had left at that point. So within five years, they sat at 3%. So if you look through German manufacturers, Toyota particularly, Toyota looks like they're going to get to go from 11% of petrol cars to less than 2% by 2030. Well, you're a tech guy, but obviously here in Australia, we get the influence of this dynamic through the, the mining sector. Do you, yeah. Did you look into whether there is going to be enough nickel, lithium, cobalt to, to, for them to source the generation of EVs? Yeah, so we actually got an external uh, really experienced resource analyst, a guy called Richard Cornman from Australia to write the section of our report. So he basically took our assumptions on what the global demand curve is and says, what do we need in terms of, um, in terms of resources? So some really big numbers. So if you look at lithium between now and 2030, we need a 300% increase. Um, for nickel, we need a big jump um, of almost 50%. Cobalt's about uh, 200 um, and uh, graphite as well is about 200. For lithium and graphite, we're reasonably comfortable. There's a ton of those resources there. It's a function of just getting them to market to meet supply demand. The bigger problems probably in cobalt, so it's uh, 70, 75% of volumes are from the DRC, the Congo, and we've had issues obviously around child labor there. So 
the world is really trying to take cobalt out of batteries. Um, and then finally, nickel, which can take a lot of time to bring a deposit to market, and they're quite complex. Those would be our two major concerns, so in, in cobalt and, um, and nickel. And so what's happening is um, battery companies are starting to address this by effectively pulling back on range. So we could get a 400-kilometre range in a smaller Tesla 2, for instance. It doesn't need nickel. It doesn't need cobalt. It'll enable them to get a car to market for probably twenty to twenty-five thousand US. So, um, you know, real value for people. Much cheaper to run an equivalent petrol car, and it takes that cobalt, that nickel out. But yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense. Um, it, it, this is just batteries. We've then got Tesla's um, household battery. We've got the utility battery here. A lot about yeah. so. Yeah, I think it's going to be an incredibly, incredibly strong couple of decades for anybody in these sort of key battery materials. And what do you, or how do you view this idea that, okay, Tesla's got the early lead, now they, they're going to get run down basically, that everybody's coming for them now. Um, do you subscribe to this idea then that it's kind of like a winner-takes-all situation, that, that a lot of the tech guys reference this according to Yeah, you? I mean, the, 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 the question is, it's almost there's an assumption that it's easy to do. I mean, Tesla will be at five and a half million production by 2025 and close to 15 million by 2030. So it becomes this issue, the law of large numbers. So take Toyota, for example, they're going to sit at a million units a year by 2030 against Tesla's 15. They have to grow at an incredibly strong annualised number. Tesla can punch out 5% growth a year. And, it, and it'll still beat it to 30, 40 million. Um, so then law of large numbers takes over. We think that the first mover advantage and their manufacturing edge, they've got the highest production margins in the, um, in the auto industry. We think that gives them this decade. They, they were the strongest. BYD also looks pretty strong out of uh, China, which Buffett's got 9% of that business. Yeah. Um, we think post-2030, look, the competition will come probably out of China and India. I think some of their um, new EV manufacturers that are going to come out of those markets will Can look Can I pick you up on that? One objection I have heard with Tesla from a guy that follows it is that the Chinese and the Indians might block them out of that market to, to get the homegrown champion happening. Do you think that's a risk? No, not really, because I think generally when you try to defend your market like that, invariably the customer just slows down their purchases. Tesla is number one. There is another banner by Wuling, it's a really tiny little runaround compact that's the number one selling, but Tesla Y and three and sort of two and three. India, you know, these guys need the best companies in the world. They need their own companies to compete with the best in the world in order to become export markets. China and India together are probably going to make up almost one in two EV sales in the next 30 years. So it's about those markets, really. Um, we think Tesla will do really well in the developed ones like Australia, Europe, the US. We think in India and China, look, it's going to try and capture maybe 15% market share. It will be competitive. I guess the last one that people talk about is the Apple car. <laughs> that just occurred to me literally as you were talking. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Apple's a big business. They're unbelievable at making phones. But what do they know about making EVs? There's a big jump from a mobile phone to a car. Same sort of principles. But, um, again, just, just, just what, what is Apple willing to bet on this? 
by 2024, when when they come out, you know, we'd think Tesla's probably a three trillion, four trillion dollar market cap. Like you've got to take on the largest company in the world in a product you have to displace that you've never been involved with before. Now, one may ask that Apple go, maybe they'll partner with a Hyundai or somebody, but but this this sort of te- Toyota, uh, Tesla's going to lay down and be beaten. Again, law of large numbers, they will be very good at what they do. Uh, by 2025, the quality will have improved and Apple will just be getting started. So we think it's less of an issue just because the, the sheer scale of where Tesla is at today. Just uh, just a final thing. When you obviously follow Apple, Amazon, Facebook, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. I mean, do you feel now that that, that big run in big tech is, is not over perhaps, but like the opportunity has to be elsewhere now because it's they are so dominant. It feels like they, they just can't keep going up. But perhaps you don't think that. No, is there still opportunity in those names? Very much so, very much so. I think it depends what you're doing. So if you think about the big things in the world, so we're, we're changing energy, so we're moving off fossil fuels to renewables. That's a big 30-, 40-year theme. Money as well, moving away from fiat towards digital money. Um, we see that with cryptos today. That's going to be an enormous theme. Do, do you invest in cryptos in the fund? Yeah, absolutely. So we own, we own a position in MicroStrategy. It's one of our largest. Michael Saylor, he's bought 114,000 Bitcoin. Um, a 10% position in our fund in that gives you us about an 8% weighting in Bitcoin. So um, were you just purely buying his Bitcoin holding? Like you don't actually care about the stock or? No, we think it's amazing. Because uh, the fund, you're quite limited as a fund, particularly around where you can custody assets today. Yep. So physically owning Bitcoin, um, do you, you can't do you feel do it. that's one of the things that, is going to juice the crypto market once that custodial issue is solved? Yeah, I mean, we understake in a group in America, a private group called Avanti Bank, a lady called Caitlin Long. Um, she's probably the leader in the world, we think, around, um, we think the US in the state of Wyoming has the best custody rules around, so where you can safely store your assets, similar to a custody of shares. Um, so, yeah, that will definitely bring... Um, you know, the, the shift from 150 million or so crypto holders today, um, based on its current growth trajectory, is within three or four years we'll be at a billion. Well, I was just going to, this is so funny. I've got two old guys. Uh, one works with us, <laughs> one's a mate of mine. They're in their 50s. They do not understand Bitcoin. Why are they going to put their bloody retirement money in this digit thing on the internet? Do you want to have a crack at it? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's, it's we always say to people, get off zero. The hardest thing is getting off zero. If you've got money and you buy 1% allocation of Bitcoin, what it does is it forces you to actually, what is it? I mean, like Michael Saylor's got some fantastic resources um, called hope.com, a website there. Um, And I think there's just some brilliant videos and, and it just forces you to take the time to understand what Bitcoin is. And once you do understand it, um, you know, it's an amazing thing, the ability to be able to um, have real custody of assets, um, uh, have, a, have an asset that we know can be stored well and it, and it has that real intrinsic value within it to underpin our system. You know, effectively, gold used to do that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's so much paper gold around and um, paper silver around that influenced the price. It, 
gold's lost its ability to um, to act and give us those signals, the fire alarm in the system that things are heating up. Um, so yeah, I, I'd encourage anyone. I mean, I think just get off zero if it's 0.1%, 0.5%. Everybody who does that will genuinely within the first year start reading about and understanding why. And again, the bull case, or part of the bull case for Bitcoin is when you have all the people in, well, not all the people in the world, but you know, lots of people in the world getting off zero and putting it into Bitcoin, there's only so many of them. Um, it's sort of a natural pressure to the price. All right. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Now, let's mention that that Tesla report of yours that you said was like 170 pages. So there's obviously a lot more. Pages. So if, you go to Holon's, if you go to Holon's website, um, holon.investments, you can um, go to our insights page there. You can download the full report. Um, we've also given full access to our financial models. So for those that are that are really interested in financial modelling, the, the, the model's probably 80,000 cells. Um, it's a really unique model that's out there for the public to, to really have a look and understand what, what, what are these guys thinking that's different? Why is the market undervaluing Tesla relative to its long-term potential? Well, certainly it's going to be one of the most fascinating sectors and there's so many implications uh, that spring from that whole transition. So super interesting. I really thank you for your time. That Absolutely. was great. And hopefully we can check back in in a year and we'll see how some of these things are tracking. Yeah, wonderful. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Ciao. Cheers.